1: and shop for anything outdoors. When you make a purchase from the Go Wild store, everything is free shipping. Anything that you purchase anywhere in the country, no matter how big, free shipping. So go down to the show notes, click on the Go Wild link at the bottom, and get signed up today. And let's go wild. Hey guys, today... On this episode of the journey, you guys are in for a treat. We are in Adesto, South Carolina, which is kind of nestled in between Charleston and, um, if you want to say Hilton Head for the guys, it's down that area, which is a kind of a, a famous tourist uh, destination. But we are in Adesto, and we are with a retired police canine handler. He is an author, he is a canine trainer, he runs one of the most well-known tracking training facilities in the world, and I don't say, I didn't say the United States, I said the world. Um, He's just come back from overseas, spending time over there for a month. Um, Jeff's got four books out, which I have them all, (laughs) Uh, he's got four books out that that pertain to police tracking in the canine and the canine world. And he's got more accolades than I can ever give him credit for. But he has been one of the mainstays for us in our training group here. And we've got, we've bought two dogs off Jeff. We have been down and trained with Jeff. We, every time we go to a seminar, we are in his classes learning, writing notes, picking his brain. Um, he he has been one of the reasons that our canine group has actually been successful in we can, he calls it man hunting, and that's exactly what it is is tracking down and finding people and um, like I said Jeff's been a a wealth of knowledge for us for me and you guys are in for a real treat today because this. This this man has more knowledge than most people will ever occur in the tracking field. So today we are going to talk to Jeff Shetler. Jeff, how is things down in Adesto this morning? Well, it's getting uh, nice and hot. <laughs> yeah,
0: like it always does at this time of year. I mean, we're getting that massive humidity coming in and those summer temperatures, and it's uh, it's the time I want to. To go out to Montana or Wyoming.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, and those the I remember the banana spiders and the snakes.
0: Yeah, that's September, August, October uh, timeframe. Yeah, yeah, I remember that well.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Jeff, for for our listeners, um, like I said, I I know I didn't do you justice on all the stuff, and and can you just kind of tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Um, you know what. What brought you into what you're doing and just, and like I said, I didn't even mention to you guys that, you know, Jeff, when he come out of California, he was attached to the FBI hostage rescue team for the canine part of it. So world of knowledge, Jeff, just give everybody a little, um, little background on you, you know, where you come from, what you do and what you're doing now.
0: Well, to begin with, um, my history really started in California. Uh, when I was a cop. and actually, before that, um, you know working with wolf and wolf hybrids. a lot of my you know my um, philosophy and dog training and dog behavior uh, stems from my time working with wolves and wolf hybrids. And um, I've used a lot of what I learned from them and applied it to to the police dog tracking and trailing work that we do. Um, and then after that, I, I spent a lot of time. Working with some of the original old timers from California in the houndsman world, mm-hmm. you know, a, a lot of people don't know this, but there was a time California was a dream destination for hound hunting with with dogs, in particular for bear. The bear population is huge in California, always has been, and uh, hound hunting was a, a huge tried and true tradition there. And and I had the pleasure of working with some amazing old guys you know hunting bear in the in the sierra mountains for for years um, and that time frame probably of all things is what really got my attention for trailing and tracking work and how i applied it to, to the business that i'm in now in hunting humans uh, so You know, I I never actually had a pack of dogs that I worked with. It was always my my friends that I worked with, but I was out there in in the mountains with them. And uh, what we did and what I learned from those dogs is what shaped me uh, as the handler and the trainer as I am today. Um, Initially, I worked for the Alameda Police Department, which is a municipal city department sandwiched between San Francisco and Oakland. This is in Northern California. Um, You know. Alameda is a really, really nice city, but it's also, of course, plagued with a lot of the urban problems and drama that we've all experienced in a big city environment. Um, Everything I did working with the dogs was uh, in a heavy urban environment. We didn't really have any woods of any type. However, since I was a single purpose tracking dog uh, working a bloodhound, I ended up getting farmed out to a lot of locations in a lot of rural areas throughout the state later on throughout the United States and and this is actually what um, started me working with the FBI's hostage rescue team as an assistant it was really kind of an asset I wasn't a team member uh, in my in its own right uh, but I was deputized as a marshal to be able to work in different states for them on certain high-risk manhunts that they did Um, later on I ended up working for the Amador County Sheriff's Department up in the Sierra Mountains uh, retired in 2005 and then I opened up uh, our business, uh, Georgia Canine, initially in Georgia um, back in 2008. And then we opened up a second branch here on Edisto Island, Keith, that you're familiar with because you spent yeah. time down here in, in our swamps. <laughs> um, and uh, this this is a completely different environment. Uh, so in a nutshell, that's basically what, I, what I've done over the years. But, and right now, I'm, I think I'm going on 27 years, you know, working the hounds and, and manhunting, I think in particular.
1: Yeah. And, you know, when I, I was trying to remember the first class that I sat in with you, um, and where it was at, but I, I, I think it was in 2013 or 2014. And what really the light bulb went off for me when, when I sat in your class and, Uh, We were, you were talking about certain things and the way that I was trained in canine back in the early two thousands was mostly the sport dog tracking the head down. Um, And I'm not against that. I'm not saying I am, but when you talked about how you let the dogs use their natural abilities and they were able to pick their heads up and follow odor. And I was like, wait a second, this is just like what my hounds do. And I remember talking to you after class and told you that I bear hunted and, you know, that's kind of how you and I had, had started that relationship. And, you know, I think for me, what sets me apart with the, the canine, most of the canine guys, well, all, all the group that I have, there's 16 guys in my group, our group, and none of them, some of them have pet dogs and so forth, but none of them have hounds and just like what you said, Jeff, I think that watching those hounds and seeing the capabilities and what they were doing, I always said that we're not getting we're not getting half of what a dog can do out of them with what we're doing, and you know, setting through your classes, which I have multiple times, like I said, we've been down we've we've really tapped in and 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 harnessed what you um have taken and put it into our group. Uh, and I I'll, I'll always say this, and I, I'll continue to say it, that after those first few classes and, and, and Robbie and I coming down and spending a week, I don't know, a couple days with you, tracking through downtown Charleston, I remember going into the parking garage and tracking through the parking garage around, and I'm like, you know, this is what it's about. Like, this is what it's about. And... Uh-huh. You know, from what we've learned from you, we took it back to our group. And, you know, I I can't say enough how we went from not finding people and going in the wrong direction, chasing people. And some of my admin at that point in time was completely anti-canine. Like, they just didn't have any belief in us. And then, like I said, we come back from, you know, and it took us a while. I can't say. It probably took us a couple years to, like, be better at what we were doing and understand some of the things and we started finding people and now it's like holy cow you know these dogs actually do find people and you know now we are kind of a uh you know our newer valley group if somebody wants a track and talk most people are calling us because they know that this is what we practice and that we have been successful multiple times now over a period of time and like I said, I, I can't say enough that that's because of what we learned from you and what we took from you and the things that we... And, and like I said, we got two dogs from you that, you know, we still want running one of them in our group. So, like I said, it it was an eye-opener for me. And I, I completely... You and I were on the same page. You talk about talking the language or, um, you know, I had Ariel on here and she was talking about, you know, um, knowing the lingo, like it all resonated with me. I was like, yep, mm -hmm, I got it. I've seen that behavior multiple times in my hounds. Yep, I understand that because I've seen that behavior. Um, Mm -hmm. So, like I said, you have been a real real big influence in our training philosophy and training methods and what we do here um, just Mm -hmm. from the time that we've spent with you. So, we're excited to have you on. and, And, like, just to tap into a little bit about what, what parallels? So you and I both have run bear, and I still do, and that's why I'm here doing what I'm doing. You know, so you, you and I talked a little bit about some of the parallels between what you you do and we do man tracking, man hunting, and then what 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 we bring to the police world. The worst thing that I see is having that lead attached to the dog. Like I feel like half of our dogs would be a lot more successful if the handler wasn't attached to it. The dog knows what he's doing; it's teaching the person.
0: <laughs> uh, you know, and, and exactly, and it's it's why you know everything that we did primarily when you you guys were out here. And it's freaking hard to believe; it's yes. almost ten years now. That's to, to me, honestly, it feels like it was like maybe a year or two ago. <laughs> I I mean, the memories are so strong. So you know. I, I, you know, one of the things we didn't do a lot of, um, and I actually, I don't think you, we did really any of it is, you know, our foundation for all the young dogs and everything that we do is running off lead, you know, um, as a matter of fact, with our puppies, when we're first starting and we do what are, we call fire trails, um, are basically nothing more than what you do with the pack dogs and young pups chasing and following the, the bigger dogs when they're learning the ropes on how to to, to trail, um, you know, bear or cougar or whatever it is that you're hunting. Um, and you know, that, that foundation work is so essential in the dog learning number one, how to fix itself on a track when it loses it to get back on that trail. Um, you know, cause there's no, no better way than honestly learning through failure. And yep. we start with the puppies, you know, usually about eight weeks of age when we start playing the game. And we work them all the way until they're, I don't know, anywhere from four to six months off lead. And basically, my foundation is is when the puppy can do about a 650-yard trail that's an hour old. Uh, that's when I first start putting equipment on them. But up until that point, they're running all off
1: lead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, we do the same thing. And just so the listeners, I can paint a picture for them. Um you know, when Jeff's saying a fire trail, basically, uh, he's dropping an item of of scent, and the 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 track layer will run off and go to a to a hidden. The dog can see the person run off, but after the person gets twenty thirty yards, the person's out of sight. So the visual stimulates, and then once he gets past that twenty yards, he's got to kick back to his natural ability, which is using his nose. And then the track layer will go to a undisclosed location, and that could be anywhere starting out from 10, 10 yards, 20 yards, to like Jeff said, up to 650 yards with a lot of time involved. And they let the pup work itself out. And one thing I, I know that we, um, in the hound world, and I talk about this a lot, we've talked about it a lot, is not having the patience, and people don't like to see the dogs fail. They start assisting them. They start helping them out and shortcutting the process and that's the worst thing to do in my opinion for a learning process of a of a of a dog is that mm-hmm. how do you feel about that yeah
0: yeah absolutely i mean learning through failures is probably one of the most important things that we can do with dogs you know if you you have to and this goes back to my experience with wolves you know in training with wolves and wolf hybrids um know a lot of people don't understand it you know even though the wolf and the coyote are the consummate hunters uh, their success rate in hunting is very very low uh, not just in tracking but using all of their um, senses to hunt you know whether it's an air scent or tracking sight or sound in all actuality it's a combination of all of them that you're using when they hunt their success rate can be in numbers of roughly five to ten percent you know and the only thing that occurs with mother nature is that failure teaches the animal that if they don't learn from the experience they're going to die
1: they're not going to eat you know
0: yeah there there is no better teacher than failure and uh, dogs are not going to quit just because they fail they're not going to get upset and start crying because they fail (laughs) the only thing that's going to happen is is that they're going to learn from their failures And, and even puppies learn so incredibly well And it's why we like to work them off lead in the beginning, because when you're attached to the leash of the dog and you're following behind, it doesn't matter how good of a handler you are, you're going to influence that dog with that leash. It's because it's like an umbilical cord connecting a mother to a child. Every time you push or pull with the leash, the dog is affected by it. And in the early stages, the puppy's running hell-bent for leather to find what it is that it's looking for. And a lot of times it's going to overshoot the track and have to come back and pick it up again. Mm -hmm. There's no way a human handler can manage that lead and keep up with that dog without affecting it with leash control. So, you know, this time, this, this learning through self-discovery and failure uh, is really important to do it off lead in the beginning days.
1: Yeah. I, well, yes, I can. And I wished you know, you and I have talked about it. I really, I mean, if we could run our dogs off lead all the time, we would probably be more, way more successful. I mean, we would be because the handler is the biggest problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, learn. Oh, huh?
0: Absolutely. I mean, we, we are the biggest impediment. You know, we actually did a, and I, I think you and I talked about this back when you guys were here. Um, in my early days, when I was first kind of learning how to be a houndsman with tracking dogs, hunting people, um, I actually ended up working under some of, you know, real old timers in the business. And one of the guys in particular was an old gentleman by the name of Glenn Rimby. He's, he's since mm-hmm. passed, but he's, he's the reason for a lot of what I do today. And I remember a school where, uh, he was one of the trainers and we were f- recording the dogs, uh, from a helicopter. Um, and we, we trailed them off lead and then we trailed them on lead. Um, and what was absolutely amazing is when the dogs were on lead, they would stop and critter get off on a distraction, stop to pee. They'd lose the track and have to recover it. And all while moving at the pace of the handler, which is, you know, anywhere from three to seven miles per hour. Um, on the other hand, as soon as the dog was working off lead on that hunt, they were reaching speeds of 20 miles an hour or, or, or slightly under, which is a full-blown run, and staying right on track, rarely missing a turn, and not once would they ever stop to the critter. Mm-hmm. They were far more accurate and far more reliable when they were off lead. Yeah. But unfortunately, unfortunately, like you said, we can't apply that to an urban condition because you know we would, you know, we would. Uh, lose our dogs to getting hit by cars or, you know, other types of situations. And in the case of, of us law enforcement officers, um, you know, if you're hunting a bad guy, the last thing we want the dog to do is to run into the lap of the, an armed suspect and get shot. Uh, so we, we have to be able to read what we call the proximity alert, knowing that we're getting kind of close and stop the dog before we actually make contact, which is really important.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, as we, you know, we kind of teach a weak track in school, to all of our special ops, our tact guys, and the road guys that want to go on track. We don't allow anybody to go on a track with us anymore since we've come back from you that does not go through some type of training on the the tra- tactical tracking team. And, you know, you see us post pictures and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. But the proximity alert, I mean, it's like it's – I feel like it's something if you don't know it, you don't need to be tracking. And if you can't understand it, you don't need to be tracking. <laughs> Because it's gonna either save you or get you I mean, we know that you know this, I know this. Like I said, it's huge. It's it's changed our philosophy, it's changed our training, and it's changed our tactics. Um, the stuff that we do and that we have brought back. Mm-hmm. So exactly. Jeff So Jeff, the so your 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 knowledge with the the hounds way back when and to you what you do now, let's draw some of the parallels from what we do, you do in the tracking industry to what our, our listeners can take forth with them and make a better hound or train, train differently to make the hound better. Um, one mm-hmm. of the things that, that I really want to talk about and, and I've talked about it on other podcasts and is the environmental effects of odor. Cause I think mm-hmm. that's one of your specialties is, you know, understanding how things work. So, right. Why don't you tap into, just tap into odor. And I know we're Mm -hmm. working with humans on our end, but Mm -hmm. you know, we can flip it over to bear, you know, coon, bobcat, mountain lion, whatever. So what are some differences in the odor from what we do and what Mm -hmm. we do? So what we do is in the police world to what we're doing in the hound world.
0: Okay. Well, first off, um, Critters are much easier to hunt for the dogs than humans. Yep. Um, and it's simply due to the fact that the bigger and stinkier the animal, the easier it is to track. Um, and, you know, when, especially when we're talking about bear, bear are very odiferous creatures. You can smell them from a long way away, just our own human nose, especially uh, de- depending on what type of diet they're into. You know, they can be incredibly stinky. They like to roll in stuff. Uh, and you can smell them from far away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can the dogs. Uh, the other thing is, is that when we're talking about scent, uh, in particular, what the dogs are following, you know, well, first off, let me preface this. I don't have a PhD in scent. As a matter of fact, I don't think there, there is one that exists when it comes to our world of tracking and trailing. Everything that I'm telling you is just based on experience and time in the field mm-hmm. and based on my observations, but based on those observations, I've discovered that I think there's roughly several different types of odor that the dogs are working with. Number one, contact odor uh, and ground disturbance. Contact odor is where the creature, human or animal, physically comes in contact with an object. This could be a branch, it could be grass, it could be brush, where the animal actually rubs up against it. When they rub up against things, they deposit odor. And this can be in the form of skin cells, hair, uh, oil, um, and then also what we call offgassing. Um, the scent is a is an interesting thing because the way dogs use it is not oftentimes how we might think about it. Um, they're not actually taking the physical object into their nose and 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 smelling it. What's What's happening is whatever is the source of odor is biologically being broken down by bacteria. And as that bacteria breaks down that organic matter, um, it off gases and the dogs are actually smelling the off gassing. So when, let's say, a bear or human rubs up against a tree trunk or shrubbery as it's running through the woods, um, that organic molecules that were deposited on that material are biologically breaking down Um, immediately. They're breaking down when they're on the animal and further breaking down when they come off the animal. Um, And this biological degradation of that organic molecule is creating a gas that the dogs follow. Okay, So this contact odor is really, really important, especially when we're thinking about uh, in terms of uh, hunting bear, cougar, bobcats, whatever out in the woods. The other thing is, is what we call ground disturbance. Ground disturbance is where the critter Or the human breaks grass, breaks weeds, um, you know, scuffs up loamy soil and changes the physical environment through physical contact. That's also another form of odor that the dogs work. It's a combination of the broken vegetation Mm -hmm. combined with the human or the animal odor. And then the the final odor that's very common, uh, and we see this when the dogs are getting close to the quarry and they win them. It's an air scent. And this is when the gases of the animal are airborne and they go in the wind column or what we call the scent cone towards the dog. Um, And it's all the exact same type of odor, whether it's on the ground or the animal. It's organic matter that's decaying and off gassing and producing scent. Um, So the big difference between the humans and the animals is the sheer amount of odor. Uh, Bear in particular, uh, pig, hogs, I've hunted a lot of hogs with dogs, uh, are very, very stinky animals. Um, They produce a lot of odor in their own right, but they also drop a lot of odor as well in the form of skin cells, hair, um, organic matter that's on their body as they're running, and in some cases, blood. And then the final thing that we have to consider, especially when we're talking about the hunt itself, when an is being hunted by a pack of dogs, it's in a state of panic. And this fear scent is a very, very strong odor. Uh, we see this in particular with the police dogs when they're hunting humans, uh, but especially with the, the hound dogs um, when they're hunting critters. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a bear, cougar, bobcat, coyote, or a fox. If you're running from a pack of dogs, it's a frightening thing and they're dumping a lot of emotional odor that's very, very attractive to the dogs. So the parallels are exactly the same. There's really no difference between the human and the dog other than just one thing, and that's the sheer quantity of odor. Humans are relatively clean uh, by nature, um, they, and especially in our current uh, you know, climate of 2022, and actually all of the last century, uh, humans don't smell as strong as animals do. And so they're harder to track we also don't have a lot of hair that we're dropping and a lot of other organic molecules uh, as related to uh, animals so the spore that we're leaving behind is nothing compared to what an animal might track this is one of the reasons why you know when we're hunting bear and, and and other animals that we can oftentimes get a far older track Uh, And it's because of the sheer amount of odor that's being produced and left behind on the trail.
1: Yeah. And when you talk about uh, fear, you know, fear hormones or, you know, Mm -hmm. and anybody that's tracked in the canine world, setting up a training track and then putting on somebody that's actually bailed out of a car, committed a crime, bailed out a car and took off there, the dogs, it's two different behaviors. Like it's two completely, Mm -hmm. you've run this track and training a thousand times and then, you put on this this first bell out and it's like holy crap what's my dog doing and like uh-huh. that that odor that you're talking about is like it, it puts your dog into a different state most of the time from mm-hmm. from what i've experienced and you know what what you're saying um, too and i like i said i'm just trying to recap to paint a picture for some of the listeners like when you talk about the ground disturbance and the contact, the contact odor, and then the the animal actually dropping odor itself. I mean, there's three different scent pictures there that that dog's putting together. Mm-hmm. I mean, Exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, and for a visual, the best thing for, to visualize um, a uh, ground disturbance is if you stepped up on a rotten log, and when you go to step off, you twist it, or that log, those shreds of that log come off. Like, you mm-hmm. just changed the the, like you said, the molecule makeup of that particular 12 inches where your boot track is. And then, you know, in the, in the hound world, we call it twigging when the bear rubs Mm -hmm. up against a laurel bush or something and you start seeing that dog working, working the laurels and he's up in the air. Mm -hmm. He's not on the ground. Like he's picking up that contact odor. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the things that we took from you too, in the police side of it is, We started using, you know, like on our B and E's and stuff. We started using the door jams, and you know, if we knew they went in and out of the front door, or you know, we started using stuff like that as our scent article, you know, to pick up off of that contact. And I'll I'll tell a quick story because it attributes to you, and it's like, I mean, I was standing out, so we were tracking a guy that had uh, abducted his child, had a court order. This kid, we'd run, he'd run from us two or three times, so. Me and one of the other handlers were out tracking him, and um, we ended up in the middle of a field, like right out in the middle of a, a huge, huge cattle field. And in my mind, I'm trying to quarter off, okay, well, he come into the field here. We know he come in here. Open grass. It changed everything. Is We'll talk about this in a little bit as far as the, the sunlight. It was 4 o'clock in the evening, rough time to track. It was late May. Um it, it was tough. So mm-hmm. me and the other me and me and Cotsie was trying to figure out all right, like how do we quarter this off and check these areas? So mm-hmm. we narrowed it down to a corner. We like he had to go through this corner. Let's go check it first, because that would be our first productive source. Yeah. And we would check it and then we would then we would kind of do it clockwise to figure it out. So we go down to this gate. And this is halfway and when I say a field, I'm talking it was a couple hundred it was probably a hundred 100 200 acre field it was a huge so we go down to this corner where we thought and like i said we thought Uh and we get we're walking down the fence line and his dog slams the gate like bam Mm -hmm. touches it and i'm like contact contact and they're like looking at me and i'm like check the gate (laughs) well sure enough he had bloody handprints where he had climbed the gate well we picked up right there and was able to track him through the end of the field. He'd crossed another fence and went up into a pine thicket. So 200 yards away, we picked him up. Yes, we got too close. We made some mistakes there. But that contact odor that you're talking about, like, we we picked that. that That's one that really stands out to me because we knew once we seen the dog, and I, then I was like, oh, there's his handprints. Like, the dog was dead on <laughs> where he crossed. So... The contact odor is huge for both of us, and especially in the woods, in the thick areas when they're going around and rubbing up against logs and stuff. That makes a huge difference.
0: Yeah, it truly does. And, you know, honestly, Heath, I would have never really paid too much attention to this if it wasn't for my time with the bear dogs.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do,
0: ex- seeing, ex- I mean, we didn't call it twigging. I don't even think we had a word for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I love that. Now that I'm going to probably, I'm going to probably use that now, but, yeah. um, you know, I see, we saw that uh, with the bear dogs, you know, they would, uh, and the other thing I would kind of want to, to, to talk about is, you know, when you're talking about that change from, you know, the from normal tracking odor to fear scent you know, how the dogs completely change their behavior. And I think the, the, the biggest simile that we can kind of talk about is, you know, when we put that cold nose hound on the track, an older track of the bear or whatever it is that we're hunting and how the dog's behavior changes once we start getting closer to the quarry. Mm-hmm. You know, once the, once the quarry knows it's being tracked, it starts to run harder because it's getting scared how the behavior changes in the dog they they start running harder, and a lot of times this is when we start hearing them bay up the you know bay up the bear as mm-hmm. uh, long before they 're even treed
1: we We call that in the hound world we call it jumped if the dog goes from mm-hmm. trailing to actually jump we call it jump once the once the the dogs are trailing and they jump that animal and he's on the move that's when that huge behavior it goes from a the long balls on the trail or very little vocalization to that bait. Like you're talking about, it's like screaming and squalling and then we're running now. So the guy should be able to to see that in their mind very vividly what you're saying. And, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, from what my knowledge is in the hounds and how you feel about the age tracks with the humans, I, I'm on the same page and I completely agree with, with a lot of the 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 disparities in the age of the tracks and everything, so um, mm-hmm. so let's talk about let's talk about environmental effects. Um, let's talk about age of the tracks, and I, look, we already know we're talking about an animal that probably puts off more scent than most because the bear mm-hmm. is a stinky creature, and I mean, everybody that bear hunts and spend a little spend any time walking and. And on the ground, they've got into a hollow or to an area, to a rock outcrop, and they're like, mm, yep, I smell it. So, we mm-hmm. we know that that odor is very pungent. We know it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. what are some things that you see? And you do this on a daily – guys, I just want you all know, Jeff does this on a daily basis in many different environments and sees things that we probably don't get to see in the capacity – so, what are some of the environmental effects? What are some things we can do to help our hounds or help train them to overcome some of the things that you see that's, that's, that sets the dogs back, takes the dogs longer, or a hindrance?
0: Well, I mean, first off, you have to just understand, um, I think, the limitations of, of odor. Um, You know, of course, the more organic molecules that we have on the ground or that have been deposited on objects, the easier it is for the dog. The larger the amount of organic material, the longer it takes to organically, biologically degrade. Um, And basically what's happening with this is, is a form of what we call nitrification. This is where you have certain types of bacteria that, for lack of better words, consume that organic matter and turn it into something else. And when this occurs it creates an off gassing and this off gassing is what the dogs are smelling Uh, it's not the actual organic molecule or item that's on the material it's the off gassing of that organic matter Um, and so what affects that what affects or you know this biological degradation well first off you have to understand what creates that condition to make it occur in the first place number one moisture is incredibly important important high levels of oxygen are also very important okay without those two that biological break, breakdown can really be retarded so if you're in a desert type environment where it's almost a form of desiccation because you have almost no humidity and a lot of direct sunlight the biological breakdown is going to be very slow it's not going to be quite as strong therefore your odor pr- uh, production is going to be much more limited you're not going to have the amount of off-gassing that you would, let's say in a swampy environment that we have here on Edisto Island. Um, so you need oxygen, you need moisture, the more of both, the better the biological breakdown. Um, but what retards odor, probably the number one thing uh, is ultraviolet light.
1: Yep, UV rays, uh, mm-hmm.
0: Yep, direct, direct sunlight is the biggest killer to scent there is. Unless of course you have large amounts of physical matter that have been deposited on the track. But let's say it's just in the case of a normal human clothed running through an open field of grass. Um, you know, If you have direct sunlight from a hard summer day, kind of what you were describing in that hunt during May, when you're trying to find where the exit point was, and you had to look for productive sources, um, that direct sunlight, uh, in particular ultraviolet light in roughly the 420 nanometer range, Um, retards bacteria growth that that is breaking down this organic matter and when you retard that bacteria growth you literally stop odor production in its track so the older the trail the more sunlight hitting that trail the less odor that you're that's being produced now there's some things that can complicate that and there's some things that can enhance that Number one, if your source, your productive source is not very productive, and what I mean by productive source is places where we believe odor might be held better than others. So, for example, if you're running across a a recently cut grassy field Mm -hmm. that's only got maybe a quarter inch of grass spikes standing up, and you have a direct summer day beating down on that grass, you can have a guy that runs across that grass field, and 30 minutes later, the dog may not be able to follow it. and 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 it's not because the odor um, you know isn't possible it's simply because the bacteria growth is being destroyed by the direct sunlight in that 420 nanometer range now if all of a sudden we change that grassy field to be under let's say a clouded sky with no direct sunlight now all of a sudden that track reappears in all its glory now the other thing we can do is instead of having a quarter inch of grass spikes let's make that grass height go from a quarter inch to let's say three to 10 inches. Now, because you have all these micro elevation changes in your surface that creates a lot of shade and also increases humidity, you've you've increased your scent picture because the productive source has gotten better. So the scent is gonna be stronger and better for the dog. So in taller grass, your track may be still very, very good under that direct sunlight. Set set, um, that sunlight, simply due to the fact that you have better micro elevation changes in your productive source. If that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, you've got a high, you've got something that's able to hold the odor. Your ten, your six inch grass can hold the odor better than your half inch grass. That, exactly. That's, that's paint the picture. A, that's simple as that.
0: And and cement, it gets even worse. And so in in our situation, especially working in an urban environment during the summertime, if you're tracking somebody through, let's say, downtown Charleston, as you were talking about when we first started the conversation, um, you're dealing with direct sunlight on that pavement, which is not a good productive source. And more importantly, that productive source is not very productive because it's full of all kinds of chemical contaminants from... You know, vehicular traffic, rubber, gas, petroleum-based products, other human beings, God knows what's been laid down on top of it. The sunlight is just one factor that's destroying that odor. You know, you have so many other things that are affecting it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we talk, you know, we have Barry run across the road quite a bit. And, like, from learning, you know, and most houndsmen know this because they just do it. It's not something they really think about. but. You know, we always go to the point where they entered the, the woods. So that, that, sur- we call it surface change. So we went from woods to a, a ditch line to hard top to a ditch line back into the woods. And usually the dogs pick that up into the woods. They usually don't pick it up, you know, in the roadway or the ditch line. It's, it's, we see that, that, that dog kind of click. Oh, here it is right here when, when it's into that productive source because the trees and the longer grass and the, you know, the stumps and everything hold that odor so much better.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the the thing is is that the dogs can actually even be taught to find odor in those more difficult places. If you just spend more time working the dogs in those locations, you know, so for example, instead of having a small road crossing, like we usually deal with bear hunting could be a gravel road or some small country road. Um, you can actually have a six-lane highway where the dogs can learn how to quickly navigate that six-lane lane highway just through exposure and experience. And that's something that we have to do, you know, of course, with our urban manhunters.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's. And this is something that comes up a to- topic of conversation. So explain to us that when we see a bear cross the road and we put our hounds mm-hmm. down. Um, we call it backtracking. We have some dogs that want to go backwards and we, you know, I know what you're going to say, but I want you to tell him. And then what what, what's going on when you turn them loose in the right direction and they can't figure it out? What, what is happening environmentally and the scent picture and the odor? What's going on with that?
0: Well, I think first off, I think you, you can agree that most of the time they do figure it out. You know more more they're, they're more successful than they're not correct um and and the reason why they're more successful is because you know honestly if they if this was not something that they could do reliably it wouldn't be an evolutionary trait that was built into the dog to begin with so you have to have a modicum of success to make it something that's going to be a reliable uh, um, instinctive trait um, and I think, number one, how, how do dogs determine the direction of travel on a track? Well, there's a lot of, it's, there's a lot of uh, information out there on that, and there's actually even courtroom testimony based on it. Um, and one of the things is, is can dogs reliably do it? Um, I believe that they can. And, and how, how is it that this actually occurs? I think that dogs determine direction of travel simply by the age of one step to the next okay so as the animal or the human moves let's say from point a to point b to point c every track as it goes forward is fresher than the track that was done before Um, so you have a change in scent picture because of the age difference now what can change that what can make that more difficult well the simple act of putting that track line on a place that's not a great productive source. So you don't have that clear age delineation from one step to the next. So that could be a hard surface start. uh, That could be a, a gravel start under direct sunlight, a sandy or a dirt start under direct sunlight, and in some situations, even grass. Now, the other thing that can do it too is if you don't have necessarily a straight line track. You have a place where the dog is getting started in the middle of what we call a scent pool. Uh-huh. This is where the creature mm-hmm. creature or the human has been circling or doing something for a while. In other words, he's feeding, you know, he's wandering around in circles, he's interacting with other animals. Um, this scent pool of um, no direct travel um, can be very confusing to some dogs. And this is why they'll oftentimes backtrack because they're in the middle, middle of a scent pool problem and not a clean track. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I was, I was going to let you go. No, I was going to have you go over scent pools because, um, some of our guys that, that run off baits in different parts of the country, which we're not allowed to here. but, you know, I've witnessed, and I, I witnessed it before I ever come to you and understood what it was that you turn the dogs into a, to a, to a bait pile and your smarter dogs will actually make a big circle, like an outer loop. Like you, you mm-hmm. would, they, what you would say they would hit the fringes, find the exit track and go on. And then mm-hmm. some dogs stand on their heads and are back and their fourth and they, they don't know where to go. Um,
0: And that's, then that's all based on experience of the dog. Yeah. You know, you, you get, you get your old grizzled veterans and they understand with certainty that they have to get to the edge of the scent pool to find the exit track. That's the only way, because if they stay stuck in the middle of the scent pool, they're just going to be running around like chickens with their heads cut off.
1: Yeah, and I can tell one story about – I was trailing a track in the snow, so I was literally walking behind my dog pretty much. He was out in front of me, and I was just following his and the bear's tracks, and we got into this big open flat, (coughs) and the bear – had spent, I don't know how there was tracks everywhere. Like the bear had laid down and got up and fed. It went and laid down again and got up and fed. I don't know how many times that process occurred, but it took me an hour and a half to try to find the <laughs> exit track amongst all those tracks. This is one bear. This is not many. This is one. And finally, my dog, um, Ring, he ended up, if I was standing in the middle of that feed area, at 11 o'clock, about 100 yards out, he ended up opening up, and he was able to figure that track out faster than I was. But it took time. And I think mm-hmm. we get to push in our hounds sometimes instead of, let, like you said, let them figure it out. If he figures that out once, the next time he'll be faster to do it. You know, you talk about self-discovery. You know, letting the dogs work it, be patient. And I think it's us as hunters and houndsmen, patience are our nemesis. We don't have enough of them. Um, Mm -hmm. but that scent pool and most of the time when a bear lays down and we jump it, and if you've, if you followed any tracks into a bedding area, most of the time they jump up and they're straight out of it. So the dogs Mm -hmm. don't have a hard time finding that exit track on, Mm -hmm. on a bear that they've jumped. Um, Mm -hmm. so, but yeah, but I wanted you to talk about the scent because that's huge in what we do in the canine world is, you know, and it's a dangerous spot for us to be in too because we don't know if yeah. they've, they've set up an ambush or, you know, they spent some time in the area and we rabbit jumped and we don't know, but I think a well, lot it's of, time... one of the reasons,
0: I think, I think it's one of the reasons why you have to train for this stuff. And, you know, when you were with us, we did this on purpose where we set these scent pools up. So the dog has to learn how to work through them, but the houndsman can do this too, you know, and the more the dog learns how to work massive scent pools, the better they get at it. And as a matter of fact, they can get to the point where, you can't even see that they're being disturbed by the scent pool. They just work right around it. They know instinctively to get to the fringe of the pool to get to the exit trail. Um, and but the way you start is set these things up on purpose. You know, um, instead of you know, let's say you're you're doing a practice track with your dogs where you drag a hide or drag whatever it is that you're dragging uh, from straight line point A to point B. Right somewhere in the middle of the track, you do a bunch of loop de loops with that scent source you know that's maybe 100 yards in diameter with lots of spots where it laid down in other words you create a pool that's you know been created 15 or 20 minutes worth of work 50 to 100 yards in diameter and then put your dog on that track and see what they do i mean if if you want to if you want to have a dog that you know instinctively starts tracks easier number one and then number two can handle these types of scent pool problems you should set it up in training first.
1: Yeah. And I think you what you said earlier, you know, that's the foundation, you know, that's when you're, mm-hmm. you know, like you do the fire trails that, you know, started eight weeks old. That's, that's what we do. Or I do with my pups, um, you know, in that 10, 12, 14, 16, that's the stuff that we're doing is letting them figure that stuff out and work through those things. And I think if people would do that in their foundation training, like you said, it, we, it would go long ways out in the real world when they're two years old and they're having to figure it out. Exactly. Exactly. One of the other things, Jeff, that I really took from you and I've, I've preached it on the podcast that I've been on when it comes to trash breaking. And we were, we were in Charleston and I don't remember the guy's name, but he had the two German shepherds that were, um, HRD dogs. Greg. Greg Greg Slater. Yep. Yep. Um, we were down there and you come into a contamination where there was a cross track and you told him to be very careful about correcting the dog. And you and I, after it was over, you and I had a a conversation about when he first got that head pop, that proximity on uh, another odor to correct it (laughs) then, not wait till you're in the track. And I took that back to my training with my hounds and I've changed the way that I do my trash breaking. And so I'm mm-hmm. going to explain it and get your input. So what I do now yeah. is I will, I used to turn my, I used to go find a field full of deer, turn my dogs loose and let my dogs get running. I mean, opening up hooray, rate rail after them and then start applying E to them. Well, mm-hmm. it took me forever to break them that way because right. I was literally, so what i done is took what I learned from you down there in that setting, and now I take my dogs into that field full of deer, and I, I just meander around, and when I start seeing that behavioral change and that, you know, that interest in yep, that odor, yep. I start tapping, tapping, tapping. It's very light sure. stimulation, and it has been a game changer for me, getting my dogs to run, not run off wanted game. Oh man, you,
0: you, it, it's the key. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I mean, putting them on the game and letting them get running wide open, and once they get in that that state of mind, that high drive, it takes ten times more energy and electricity to stop that than if you stop it before it starts. And that's exactly what you told me: stop it before mm-hmm. it starts. And I well, can they... go ahead.
0: I mean, the easiest way to, to kind of think about it is, is, you know, we've, we've all had to house train dogs, so they don't poop in the house. You know, it, it's absolutely useless to try to correct the dog after they've already shit in the house. Yeah, You know, we know that it doesn't really work. And it's because dogs are in the moment thinkers. They don't, they're not linear thinkers like us. They don't think forwards and backwards. They think in the moment right now, what's happening right now. So if, the dog poops in the house, five minutes later, you find the poop and you start screaming at the dog. You're the problem. It's not the poop. They don't understand that what they did, even if you rub their nose in it is their fault. You're the problem. Okay. Um, and the key to it, honestly, is when you see the dog starting to do the poop walk, Mm -hmm. he's getting into the living room. (laughs) He's starting to sniff all over and you can see that butt puckering. That's the time to correct. No, leave it. Pick him up, put him outside. As soon as he poops, you know, you praise him up really good. You know, if you, if you can make your timing on corrections when the dog is thinking about the problem and not in the middle of the problem, you're going to get far better results, far better results. And so we, we do this with humans and dogs as cross tracks because dogs by nature follow, want to follow the freshest track. And one of, the reasons why, one of the reasons why our hound dogs jump off onto what you call trash, I call critters, is because it's usually a fresher trail. You know, they're, they're running that bear, they're running that coyote, they're running whatever it is that you put them on. Um, and that could be, let's say, a 45-minute, two-hour-old trail. And then suddenly, they cross a fresh deer track, and that deer is running for its life because it saw or smelled or heard the dog. That dog is going to want to jump that deer simply because it's a fresh scent, right? And so the key to to training that out of the dog is getting them early, as soon as they make that change. and And I think Keith, what you're doing right now, um, are you doing that on lead or off lead? Off lead. When you're out in the field, yeah. No, with, so with my hands.
1: Or, yeah. 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 I do. it. I do everything off lead because that's that's yeah. the environment that we're in. The only time that I have my dogs on lead is when i'm bringing them away from a tree or, or dead game. yeah when i'm done and that's temporarily I, I take them away from the object and then they're back to off lead and we're back out to where we're doing so yeah
0: okay yeah so i mean as long as you could the, the key to solving the corrections is you have to know the corrections or ha- or to solving the distractions or the critters is to know that this is occurring. So you have to be inside of the dog. You have to be able to see the physical body language changes that telling you that the dog is starting to
1: critter. Yeah. And another thing that I've done that I've got, I've got some, you know, I've got some rambling about is if, if my dog is out in the woods and I cannot see him and I do not know what he's doing, I don't, I don't start stimulating. I don't eat him. And even if he's running, Mm -hmm. and my my nemesis is a coyote. Deer is pretty easy to break Mm -hmm. off of because I have them everywhere. Coyote's Mm -hmm. a different story, but some of the guys that I hunt with are like, are you not going to get him? Are you not going to? And I'm like, no, because I don't know. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I've not seen what he's running. Mm -hmm. Um, And at that point, I'll try to cut the dog off. And if Mm -hmm. I, if I go to cut him off now and he runs around me, which dogs will do because they want to continue on, then I may stay, start um, applying some stimulation, but I've made contact Mm -hmm. with that dog. I've been there. He's, he's avoided me to continue to run the off game. And now I will Mm -hmm. do that, but I'm very, um, I have been very, I have changed my outlook. I have changed my philosophy and I have changed the way I've done things because taking what we picked up, I picked up from you, I see the differences. I see how easy it is if you get, stop them before it starts and how Mm -hmm. much difference it's made in my, how much easier it's made my training basically.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, actually there's a really great way to solve the coyotes, you know, and I, I don't know if I touched on it when you guys were here, but the way I do it is I would trap the animals uh, so they're live mm-hmm. and I, I would set up a, 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 known track with whatever it is that I'm hunting, let it age out to 45 minutes or an hour older. And then I would, I would have somebody else take the critter animal, the coyote, the coon, the cat, whatever it is that you have and drag them in the cage over the top of the track that you just laid. Um, start the dog on the track. When you see them start to change behavior because of the cross track you stimulate them and correct
1: them. I got you. Mhm. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that that's the easiest way to solve those
1: problems. Yeah. Like I said, the coyotes unless you just see it crossing the road or you get the tracks in the snow, they're very hard for us in this mm-hmm. area to to get our hands on them unless like you said, unless you are somebody's trapping them for you or somebody's caught one where, and we we actually have done that. Exactly. I did it in the opposite mm-hmm. way. We we caught the animal Took it out into a field, turned it back loose, and then took the dogs in behind it. Um, yeah. So I get what I, and if I have the opportunity, I will do the other. I will flip it the other. Cause that's, you, that's saying we want you to run this. This is mm-hmm. bad. And then you can continue to run this and get your reward.
0: Right. Exactly. And, you know, you can also do it with, with fresh roadkill too. You know, if you find a, a coyote that's just been beat, recently popped by a car, uh-huh. you can drag that, you can drag that sucker as a cross track and that works as well.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. So Jeff, is there anything else that you would see a parallel from what you know, what you've learned in the canine world that would lead or help the houndsman's with their training or what they do?
0: You know, honestly, I I think you hit on the the major topics that we've, we've just talked about, you know, the scenting conditions, you know, the difference between quarry and the amount of odor production, um, you know, I, I think that you really, really tapped into a good part of that. But I think if anything, I want to emphasize is, is that everything that I'm teaching now, everything that I'm doing now with hunting people is based on the houndsman's philosophy. And you, you have to understand that the, a lot of the traditional tracking that we're seeing in law enforcement today with German shepherds and the, the patrol dogs is based on a philosophy of sport training that started over a hundred years ago in Germany, what we call Schutzen tracking, Mm -hmm. which is a very, very specific footstep-to-footstep method where the dog is corrected any time they pick their nose up off the ground or move off the side of the track. But what people don't really understand is is that the methodology for hunting people is rooted in history that goes back with houndsmen hundreds and hundreds of years ago, where the dogs were used off-leash just like they're used today for hunting bear and deer and the training philosophies and principles, although modernized that we're using today. And we've got a lot more knowledge about odor and what the dogs are following. The basis for what we're doing right now, Heath, goes back hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. You know, there's guys that are doing exactly what we're doing now, three or 400 years ago in the same area that you're hunting in today, doing much the exact same thing and then before that doing it in Europe England Belgium all throughout Germany I mean what we do now is 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 nothing new uh we there's a lot of historical precedent and if anything it's the houndsman and the houndsman's world that's created the man hunting and man tracking that I do today
1: yeah i i mean when you look at the the rich history of of the hound, and I mean, if you look back, I know your first dog was was a bloodhound, and I am partial to hounds because of my love for what I do, um, even though I don't run one in the canine field. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing that the technology and the 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 more insight we have now, but these guys were doing it. I mean, if you look back, what is it? Back in the 18th century, you know they were using mm-hmm. bloodhounds for to track, to track. Um, you know, we started backtracking the Indians with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. yes, I, I get it, and I think what little knowledge I have, and what little success that that we have accomplished here, is because of my my the hounds, because of my understanding mm-hmm. of track, and even though mm-hmm. I can't see odor and don't know. Squat about it. The hounds, their behavior, have taught me what I know.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. So we can apply that to everything.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm the stupid end of the lead. Like, I mean, really, I I am. I'm mm-hmm. I'm following them. I can't see it. I can't smell it. And you know, I'm like you said. I am the interpreter of the the animal's behavior. That's all I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Jeff, we I can't tell you. I can't tell you how appreciative I am for you um, spending the morning with me and talking to our listeners and just bringing some of your knowledge over, and again, I can't tell you how much our group has profited in success because of what we took away, and we continue to learn from you. I mean, like I said, we're continually reading articles and keeping up, and you know, I know it's been a couple years since any of us has been down there, but... Like I said, hopefully, hopefully I'll see you in Orlando in in August. Um, we plan mm-hmm. on we plan on being down there, and we can catch up. Excellent, and, yeah. So Jeff, at the end of every podcast, is, okay, is there anything else you want to add before we cut this? I mean, is there anything that, any input anything that you want to add?
0: Well, I need to just get up there and do a bear hunt with you. I haven't done that in thirty years. You know, my
1: door <laughs> is open, and you're probably yeah, in better shape than I am.
0: So, <laughs> well. I'm- my, my knees don't work like they do these two, but you know what I'd love to do is, um, you know, come up and experience that again and actually get my, uh, you know, my son and daughter to experience it too, because I think uh, working the hounds is, 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 is on a hunt like that is a visceral experience that transcends just about anything else, and you don't know it until you know it, and you really have to experience it. It's a once-in-a-lifetime experience, True.
1: You know my door's open. All you got to do is say when, and we'll make it happen. Yeah. So, Jeff, at the end of every podcast, we we end with a a saying, and I'm going to switch it up a little bit today because um, this is a reverse role for us. But, Jeff, at the end of every podcast, uh, I want to end with this, is thank you for helping us find a way.